Hello everyone and welcome to Outside World Occultism. I'm your host, Ni, and with me today are Katya, JT, F, Hi there. And Lev. Hello. We're your podcast with the least human hosts on the internet, which is always a fun niche to be in. (laughs) Today's episode is, as you could probably glean from that snippet, about yokai in general. And this is actually going to be about, well, how do yokai think and how does that compare to the usual human model of neurotypicality? Yeah. Is there such thing as a neurotypical yokai? And is that at all anything like a neurotypical human? Are there such things as yokai neurodiversity? We got a question, I think it was last time or maybe the time before that, about interpreting koishi as neurodiverse. And I kind of Mm -hmm. misinterpreted that question a bit, answered it as though they were talking about mental illness, but that's not really what neurodiversity means. Well, it is under that umbrella, though. I think we mostly went into a lot of rambling about whether she is probably by some definition neurodiverse and trying to guess out of nothing what person sending the ask actually meant which is yeah something we end up doing a lot fascinating it's a fascinating hobby please include as much detail as you feel is necessary in your asks because we will just make up something (laughs) if we think we don't have the whole story i mean that's part of the fun isn't it shout out to the rare pairs episode yeah and usually we'll assume the worst yeah, we are not the most optimistic podcasters. I try to give people the benefit of the doubt a little bit, but yeah. that won't stop me from dunking on them. I don't. <laughs> Have you seen me as her asks? The benefit of the doubt does not preclude the detriment of the dunk. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, yeah, it's fun to first we go through how they could have meant something not bad. But then with that out of the way, we'll, we go with the bad one anyway. <laughs> We're just like, well, they could have not meant something like the weird interpretations you see of Koishi all the time, but we're going to assume that they were talking about those anyway. You know what you're getting. (laughs) (laughs) Caveat emptor. They're not buying anything. (laughs) I mean, not with money, but... Geneva's no land. Oh, I guess you have to buy this with your time. Considering you have to sink like an hour into every episode. Yeah. And you do get what you paid for. That's true. You do get out of it what you put into it. (laughs) Well, either way, let's get into what is a yokai? A miserable little (laughs) pile of human emotions. (laughs) Yeah, I feel like this is kind of calling back to one of the very first episodes, I think. It was like episode two. My thesis was basically that it's harder to define where a yokai starts than where a human ends. Yeah. And basically that you become a yokai once you stop being a human and also don't count as anything else specifically. Yeah. Yeah, I think that that's a generally good way of looking at it. But in this episode, we're basically going to be addressing what that means for yeah. the way that yokai think. Yeah, instead of puzzling out what a yokai is, we're going to be puzzling out how a yokai is. <laughs> no one ever asks why a yokai is. <laughs> you walk up to a yokai and ask them, how are you? And they're just like, oh, I'm doing kind of well today. And you're just like, no, no, no. I mean, how do you exist? <laughs> and they're just like, you should not be. <laughs> 
Well, that's kind of rude, isn't it? I think the most usual yokai answer would be very carefully. (laughs) (laughs) You might also get very annoyingly. Precariously. Fabulously. (laughs) (laughs) These are all answers that Yukari would give. Well, she is a very yokai yokai like yokai. yokai. I think you could build like an alignment grid out of this. I think that that's actually a pretty good place to start for, like, the way yokai think, or at least the way that humans think about how yokai think. Yeah. Hmm. Yeah. Yukari is one of the characters we look at and we see the non-human elements, but we also get some of her perspective and some of the not necessarily human, but, like, understandable Yeah, it's like, well, I can comprehend where you're coming from, even if I can't understand that at all. Yeah. Like, you can see how her thought process works. You just can't imagine your own thought process following those same steps. Yeah. Which I think is a pretty good way to map the way yokai think in general. Because, for example, take Aya. She resembles a human pretty perfectly when you're just interacting with her in a normal situation but from her internal monologue and notes in the photo album games you get a thought process that comes from an entirely different place yeah and you also get a little bit of that from like her the print works that are just like her newspaper you can sort of get a glimpse Mm -hmm. into her thought process just based on what she chooses to publish and she's doing it as like a sort of attempt to be marketable too so you can see that like well, this is, yeah, this is the sort of thing that yokai would read and enjoy, even if they think of it as a gossip rag. Yeah. And I think with mm-hmm. Tengu in particular, I think they have their own section in the, like, how do you look at this from a neurodiversity perspective? Because so much of that is tied into, like, social expectations of development. And most yokai, that just doesn't map. Yeah. Tengu live in a society... I started thinking about this episode in the first place when I thought about the fact that yokai are just generally not social. Yeah. Yeah. Because the way that humans think is so fundamentally based on the fact that they are social creatures, that a being for whom those expectations aren't set up could kind of end up thinking in a completely different way, even if they weren't, you know, man-eating monsters. Yeah, a a lot of... (laughs) Yokai are the product of human imagination, basically. To a human, there's nothing worse, really, than isolation and being cut off. I don't know if that's really accurate to why they're so isolated, though. A lot of, like, human neurodivergent things are defined in social terms and, like... I'd even like besides things like autism and that are like literally defined in words by social terms, anything that has to do with how you interact with other humans can be said to be something that would be fundamentally different for, I mean, something that not only is an enemy of humanity in some sense, but also isn't social with its own species. Yeah, it's yokai do interact with each other, so they have some capacity for sociality, but yeah. they aren't naturally social kind of like octopuses (laughs) and they don't have a social expectations on how they behave and how they think yeah as long as you're 
strange and scary, nobody is going to think twice about the way that you act. In general, anyway. And that's why the Tengu... Tengu are an exception. By and large, at least, if, like, crowd events are anything to go by, they enjoy being social in the sense of interacting with others, but then they always gather and don't really live together in any kind of, as mentioned, society. They're social in the sense that people who go to bars and hang out talk about being social. They're not social in the sense that a, like, biologist studying a species would say that this is a social, like, wolves are a social species. Yeah, wolves are a social species, even though foxes can, like, sometimes gather up, that doesn't necessarily make them a social species, you know? I think that most yokai are perfectly happy with living a life of isolation and not really interacting with others, but you do kind of also have to keep in mind that the main way that a yokai is supposed to sort of interact with the world is by attacking or frightening or otherwise, I think, psychically plaguing human beings. Yeah. Yeah. So that could be sort of viewed as its own mode of communication. Yeah, and, you know, expressing oneself and being social. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And just me and the girls out in the town. Causing problems. Terrifying the shit out of some villagers. Mm-hmm. Like wolf, for instance, there can be like apex predators that are social. But yeah. most of them tend I to think... be solitary, I think. I think that if you want to compare yokai to apex predators, you might want to compare yeah. them to like a conglomeration of different big cat species, because those are all... There's a degree of sociality there, but to most extents, generally, they live on their own, basically. Yeah, they're pretty solitary. And, like, if you look at, like, Aki's data books and stuff, where she talks about different yokai and stuff, a lot of them, she just kind of mentions that they're really solitary and Mm -hmm. are just, like, living in some random place in Gensokyo on their own and don't like to be bothered or whatever. Yeah, even the ones with, like, relatively high human friendship levels aren't particularly social. It's just, like... Yeah, they will interact with people on a non-threatening basis. And the subject of whether some yokai, like, I don't know, Rumia has a house somewhere in the woods sometimes come up. And, I mean, you can give any answer to that depending on what's the funniest and most convenient for your current context. But for the most part, I guess, the ones that we see even having that sense of quote civilized life in the sense of having a house that they live in and take care of as opposed to like floating around at random seems to be the exception i feel like even for example mistia has her eel stand but does she have a house that she goes home from from that place or does she just stand around there (laughs) i like the idea that she has a house because I've read some really cute doujins with Missyo where she lives in like a treehouse and I just like that mental image and I think it's I mean, cute. Yeah, that's the thing that you can give any answer you want and you're not wrong. There are definitely a bunch of stories about just like yokai living in abandoned human houses and I think that that's probably the most likely scenario for most of the at least human-shaped yokai that we know. Yeah. Definitely in Gensokyo, but we do also have to keep in mind that like, you know, in like former hell and stuff there's like construction crews of spider people and stuff like that who come together and build stuff for yokai yeah old hell seems like one of the probably the second most organized place after the tengu mountain 
I feel like it's less so organized and more social than usual. Yeah, it's kind of anarchy down there, but like it's anarchy. City-wise, they've got the remnants of the old capital and they've yep. got like city districts and Yugi running the spa district and stuff like that. Yeah, it's... I think Oni are just another exception. Yeah. It's not like a high bar to be among the most organized yokai, really. <laughs> yeah, yokai are... Organizing yokai is like herding cats. So the yokai that actually do live in a society are basically like the Oni, the Tengu, and the Kappa, right? Is there anyone else? Yeah. The Kappa live in a society in the loosest terms possible, probably. The Ankappa. Yeah. Kappa live in an office. <laughs> Kappa live in an office and they don't interact with each other ever. They just sit in their cubicle and think about how they're going to exploit the lower classes. Is there a cop a lower class? <laughs> oh no, they're just thinking about the humans in that sense. Oh uh, yeah. Kappa are like what happens when you have like big tech companies that have like all of the stuff that it's like, you know, you never have to leave work because we have all stocked fridges <laughs> full of food and gyms and bathrooms and showers and like a movie theater. Like you never have to leave work ever. And that's, that's just Kappa society in a nutshell, I think. Okay, makes sense. They don't really have like a CEO in charge of everything. It's just whoever can like aggressively badger the other Kappa into collaborating on some project that they're thinking about. Yeah, it's both a very, how to put it, like very caricaturish, but also a very ideological like ANCAP society, I guess. <laughs> yeah, it's like <laughs> if Ayn Rand wasn't a hack. <laughs> <laughs> I guess at this point, we've talked about a bunch of different scenarios where yokai behavior differs from that of human society by sort of pointing to the ways that yokai tend to organize themselves. Yeah, we've talked about how yokai are social. <laughs> and not social. Yeah, we've talked about how yokai are social. So ignoring yeah. the three <laughs> exception cases to come back to sort of later... What are the big tents we can throw on yokai mindsets? I think there's definitely the tents of yokai who has been around for a long time and yokai who has been around for a shorter time, but I feel like that's just age, but you multiply that by a lot because you want to live forever. <laughs> I, like, I think basically, like, there's the tier of yokai that are just, like, random individual little creatures running around in the woods. Your Tokikos and your Rumias and your, like, random yokai from Forbidden Scrollery. And I think those can be sort of divided into yokai who sort of get the rules of Gensokyo and yokai who do not understand the rules either because they are... Too young? Yeah, like brand new in town or... Just stubborn. It basically seems like only the girl chef yokai get the rules. If you understand, then you understand. Please understand. If you... <laughs> 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 only people who understand understand this, please. <laughs> Joking about one of Tsun's music comments. It's been on my mind. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but I think that it's not mysteriously girl-shaped yokai understand the rules. I think it's just, oh, I'm going to shape myself like a cute human if I understand the way that Gensokyo works because that benefits me. Yeah. At least when I'm interacting with other people. Mistia might just be shaped like a bird when she's not interacting with humans. All the yokai who know what's up has realized that they should become cute girls. <laughs> 
basically. Gay rights. I wonder <laughs> if Unzan counts as an exception to the rule or like Rinosuke, but I mean, Rin- Rinosuke is like a cute anime boy, so that's fine, I guess. Rinosuke isn't a yokai in the first place he's, since he scared them. Well, yeah. Unzan is probably... I mean, he was kind of, like, tamed by Ichiri in a sense. Unzan knows that someone needs to fill the role of mascot creature in any sufficiently large cast of cute girls. (laughs) Yeah. I guess that's true. Also, there's just the fact that he's a cloud. You don't have to have gender presentation if you're a cloud. I guess that's true. (laughs) Uh, Yes, the many genders. Cumulonimbus, cumulus... (laughs) Cirrus. <laughs> I haven't taken a meteorology course in years. I don't remember any other types of clouds. How did you remember cumulonimbus and cumulus, but not nimbus? I said nimbus. That was the third one I said. Oh, did I say cirrus? Yeah. Yes, you said cirrus. <laughs> okay. I remember four types of clouds and I've forgotten that to say one of them, but yes. <laughs> I guess it's just more common to be a cute girl than to than to not be a cute girl. I think, like, statistically, if you had a population of yokai, you would end up with, like, a population of yokai that is understanding of what being a yokai is. Then you'll end up with, like, at least 95% cute girls. So there's the yokai who get it and the yokai who don't about living in Gensokyo. And then there's the yokai who are either have, like, structured themselves in organizations that allow them to sort of be in the upper tiers of yokai society or are just in charge of everything because they're strong yeah they're the giant rats that make all the rules let's see what kind of trouble they get themselves into yeah and definitely the giant rats who make all the rules they have probably the most interesting psychology of any yokai when it comes to the like the little guys your tokikos and your snake guy from forbidden scrollery and so on they're just deciding i'm going to have a living basically though i think that it's more that their lifestyles are just more simple than it kind of seems like the average yokai doesn't really need a living either they just kind of do their own thing in the woods probably just in isolation or they ignore the rules and they get squashed well they don't necessarily have to be in the woods i mean you have stuff like Seikibanki in the village. Yeah, definitely. I just mean people who sort of get the rules and conform to them and tend to peacefully live out their lives. And they're sort of passively benefiting from the way that Gensokyo is structured for for the existence of yokai. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Does Sekibanki really go out of her way to fulfill her role as a Rokurokobi? Like, is she out there just, like, scaring people randomly or, like, preying on travelers? I mean, that's the, what I was thinking about, like, yokai psychology. You end up with, like, yokai just think of, well, it's the natural thing to do to attack people. I think Phantasmagoria of Flower View is actually a pretty good example of this since you have a lot of random nobodies who are yokai in there and you get to hear what their perspective of things is like. Hmm. And as I recall, Aki talks about the purpose of yokai as well. Yeah. Yeah. What does she say? I can't remember who she's fighting. I think she's telling Yuka to attack humans more because she's being an old lady. (laughs) But yeah, like, Bunky, for instance, seems to have kind of, obviously we don't know the details because we haven't gotten the goddamn data book yet, but (laughs) she kind of seems to have opted out of the whole thing. 
Yeah. Like I, that's the vibe I get. Like she, I don't, I don't get the impression that she's interested in like being a yokai, like yokai. I don't know if like she's particularly active in it, but like if if she met you in a dark alley in the middle of the night, she would probably pop her head off just to scare you. Like, she isn't going to pass up an opportunity to scare someone, but she's not going to go out of her way to scare people. I guess that's true, because, I mean, if my head came off, I would do the exact same thing. <laughs> but, yeah, yeah. And, then, and you don't even gain a material benefit from it. <laughs> Says you. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, I, I guess I can I can see that. Like, like, she's definitely somebody who passively benefits from Gensokyo, but does not really actively go out of her way unless she just like gets like a really easy opportunity i feel like you end up with yokai like that in legends a bunch too that just kind of sit around and wait for unfortunate people to pass by and go hmm, i'm going to enter this weird abandoned house that has an old lady living in it and nothing bad is going to happen to me at all i am a feudal japanese citizen so i don't know what these words don't at me i'm chilling carved onto the wall in blood me <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I think you can basically call it like you call it like picking a fight at that point. Yeah, yeah, and cer- certainly yokai would see it that way. Yeah, yeah. Isn't that like basically you're... Lotus Land story? <laughs> yeah, you just go into a yokai's house, but it's not like they don't want you to come into your their house. They do leave the door unlocked and everything. Yeah. It's just like they're gonna attack you if you come in because that's just they're trusting you to respect their hospitality and if you don't do that well you won't be respecting anybody's hospitality ever again. <laughs> if like most Yokai are like passively solitary, as in they don't mind someone being around and if someone comes around then they'll spook them. But do we have many examples of like actively Solitude seeking yokai besides like the mountain hags. Uh, Alice? Alice like goes to the village and stuff. She just doesn't. Satori? Yeah, I guess. Yeah, Satori definitely counts. And I guess you're right about Alice because she is perfectly nice to people who get lost in the woods and wind up in her home, but she does still creep them out uh, just by being. Which is especially funny because she's a magician. She doesn't generally eat people. <laughs> a, a magician who used to be a human, even. I think the idea that she just sits them down in the living room and forgets about them is, like, very relatable in a sense. Yeah, it definitely is. Though I somehow wonder if, like, yokai of the general sense, not the magician sense, that were previously human have more of a gung-ho thing about attacking people. I have no support for this whatsoever, but I just feel like it might be the case. Like, not necessarily eating people, but, like, they're just like, well, I already lost my humanity. I might as well go ham on this. I definitely think that beast yokai are like that, for sure. Mm-hmm. like yokai who used to be animals i'm not sure about humans but i do think that humans who became yokai are definitely a very interesting bridge to explore the differences in psychology there's definitely a point where you start thinking yo- like a yokai does yeah i mean if you're just born a yokai then that's like the obvious state to you and you like yeah. don't know to appreciate it whereas if you're Mm-hmm. A human who becomes a yokai, then you have that, like, a phase or of anywhere from two to two hundred years of fuck yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm a yokai now. 
Or, oh, no, I hate this. Well, yeah, that too. But Either way, that is going to probably lead you to be a little bit more yokai-like. Specifically, changing from a human to a yokai ends up giving you a different perspective and possibly even a more, like, aggressive human-hating or any kind of other perspective that a born yokai doesn't have. Yeah, I imagine that, like, in most stories... Just in general, not in Toho, but in most stories about humans who become yokai or even just stories of humans who become monsters just in the greater yeah. like culture of the world, uh, not just Japan. Those are always stories about a human being who has something, you know, a little bit off about, not quite the same as everyone else, so to speak. A lot of the time it's stuff like grudges and like hatred. And often of mm-hmm. also as a response to hatred directed at them. Mm-hmm. It's some kind of basically monstrosity in their personality. At least society views it that way. Yeah, or it likes from sort of lack of understanding or a misinterpretation of some kind of quirk of that person that causes everyone else to like shun them or avoid them. And I think that you can get an interesting perspective on that with Kosuzu because she's not a yokai yet, but she is basically a fanatic. She's a fanatic and she also just thinks in a way that's probably not exactly what most people would call human. Yeah, and she's in the I'm a yokai, fuck yeah class, definitely. (laughs) 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 Together with Sumireko, even if that was more of a misunderstanding, but... Yeah. (laughs) I don't know if Sumireko would actually want to be a yokai if she thought ever. Yeah. She was excited about the idea. But she doesn't think ever, so... (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, and it's obvious that Raymond and Marisa think that this is, like, a really fucking weird thing to think or, like, be excited about. Yeah, because they're just like, why would you want to be a being that is diametrically opposed to humanity? Yeah, and, like, both in Sumireko and Kosuzu's case, they kind of treat it as a very bizarre quirk of those characters. They get called yokai-like humans a lot, but that's more the way they act than the way they think. Yeah, like, Reimu probably has, like, a billion rumors and stuff in the village about how she's, like, I I went to the Hakurei Shrine and I saw the Shrine Maiden and she had horns or something, you know, like, (laughs) just mysterious rumors about how she's the Yokai Shrine Maiden. Mm -hmm. But it's kind of funny how they're usually pretty chill in the end when they end up interacting with her. Yeah. And they don't mind lining up for a fortune telling. Yeah. Yeah, there's always rumors, but when she actually shows up, she's... Just a regular girl. Almost refreshingly normal. Yeah, she's, she's just Remu. She is yokai-like in the sense that, yeah, she's going to get into fights all the time on half a whim. Mm. That's just her job, though. Well, she also gets into fights with Marisa. And... Yeah. That's true. Like, yokai just have a rather combative nature, I think. Yeah. Because it like it's not necessarily even that they get pissed off often. It's just like, oh, you're here and I'm here. Why don't we have a fight? Yeah, I guess that is sort of, in a way, their form of communication. Yeah, that and festivals. <laughs> Being gathered. Which also tend to include fights. Gathering on large splash pages full of cameos. <laughs> 
There's also the fact that Reimu is relatively isolated too, so that and the fact that she fights all the time is probably why she and Marisa are thought of as yokai-like humans, probably. Yeah, they definitely have that bit of... Even if that's mostly just a superficial yokai-likeness. Yeah, and certainly to the humans of the village, like Reimu and Marisa are definitely, like, you know, there's something a little off about them, if you know what I'm saying. Like, that kind of thing is probably a... That girl ain't right. I think that basically to understand the concept of yokai neurodivergence, you probably have to start with looking at, like, you know, from a human perspective, like, the reasons why, like, you know, these stories about humans becoming yokai and stuff like that, and, like, what kind of behavior that's associated with, and how that factors into the way that yokai come out thinking. Obviously, we have nothing else to base our concepts of neurotypicality and neurodivergence on. Yeah, I was gonna ask, there's kind of a couple layers to this question. There's the, how are yokai like neurodivergent by human standards and what would be neurodivergence for a yokai yeah that's what i was that's the section that i was thinking of and i feel like this is one where we just have to talk about the cases we sort of talked about in brief earlier because like the broader antenna or the broader umbrella not antenna of yokai There's so many different expectations of behavior and often are defined in terms directly of how they go against expected human behavior. Yeah, especially the yokai that fit into like mythological types rather than just a yokai. Yeah. No subtitle. Because a yokai no subtitle has a lot of different ways that they can act, even if most of the ones that we know are just kind of attack at you with a rock. Yeah, but there's also how they interact with other yokai, how they interact with humans that are more resistant to rocks than most. There's (laughs) a lot of elements there. And I feel like, at least in my opinion, defining a neurotypicality on a set that large with like, we are talking about including everything from Monty Python and the Holy Grail's Killer Rabbit to Cthulhu, as far as the (laughs) scale goes. Yeah, it's basically... Yokai neurotypicality is anything that you can't fit onto a human set. For the general case, anyway. But I think there's Mm a... For Oni, Tengu, and Kappa, because they don't just have... They act inhuman, but they have to act... Inhuman in a particular way. Like a Tengu, or a Kappa, or a... It's not Yamawaro. What what are the the hill Kappa? Yamawara? Yamawara, yes. And, of course, then Oni. And so that I think the Yamawaro Kappa relationship gives another important relation to this because their whole mindsets and behavior changed with their environment, which is not like humans historically change their environment to suit their behavior, plus or minus how we dress. Hmm. Yeah, humans don't change based on the way that we are perceived by other humans unless we're doing that sort of thing consciously generally yes and even when it's not how we're perceived by humans like if i get on a plane and fly from my cool twin cities basement to the middle of the australian outback i'm not going to suddenly develop a fascination for long dry long knives and fighting dingoes <laughs> and long most, drives too and long drives yes i'm <laughs> mostly going to put on a t-shirt 
and maybe some shorts. Whereas with the Kappa, when they move, when they change their locations, they're becoming, they're no longer Kappa because Kappa live in the river. Mm-hmm. That's what they're defined as. So if I decided I was going to move from redacted place where I am right now to, for example, Maine, I would automatically develop like a taste for lobster and an accent because that would just be the person that I was defined as now. You know, it really is amazing that we are all able to wake up in the morning and commute to the satellite to (laughs) (laughs) for each of these broadcasts i don't know about you guys but i've been stuck up here the whole time (laughs) yeah i just actually moved uh if you were wondering the thing that was going on in habroom see i've actually reconstructed the entire twin cities up here because i was bored and homesick when i should have been editing the audio so (laughs) don't mind me too much i'm working on australia next (laughs) yeah um the thing is in terms of to bring this sort of around to the main topic the thing then becomes that a yokai, in terms of neurodiversity and in terms of changed mindsets, there is a point where they genuinely become a different sort of creature yeah. based on changes in their surroundings and environment. Like, I think that Koichi is unironically a pretty good example of a changed mindset that doesn't end up with the changed creature because there's no human definition of a Satori that only reads your subconscious. That is just, but that's what she is now. So mm-hmm. yeah, she just can't fulfill any other role than the one that she already has. So she's still a Satori, but she's just a very unusual Satori. Yeah, like, the fact that the Kappa Yamawaro change happens so simply is that Yamawaro are like... Yamawaro are something that exist, basically. They are defined as Kappa who live in the mountains, so... If there wasn't any such thing as the legend uh, relating to Kappa living in the mountains, Yamawaro wouldn't exist, and Kappa would just live in the mountains and be, still be Kappa. Yokai is defined by its identity and its purpose, whereas human beings tend to define their own identities and purpose. Yet yokai can still act outside of, like, it's not like predetermination, it's just the effect of a different physical force on you. Like, if I end up smacking my head against the wall accidentally because I'm a clumsy idiot, I'm going to end up with a ruse. And if a yokai ends up putting themselves into a situation that makes them fulfill the role of a different human-perceived yokai, they're going to become that. Like, Koishi is uh, actually, like, you know, obviously maybe one of the best examples of a yokai who has kind of rejected her purpose. And because of that, she's kind of become... Like, she hasn't faded away, but she has been sort of very drastically changed in a way that has serious consequences for both her and how people like perceive her. Yeah, because normally you'd think that if someone stopped being able to read minds, they would still be able to understand other people's 
emotions and think on their own, but yeah. her mind reading is so innately tied to the way her own mind works, because that's how Satori are, that she becomes a being that doesn't really think consciously. Yeah, and there's a couple other examples of yokai who have sort of rejected their, like... Yokaniti. Yeah, like place or purpose in society. I think that Aya is actually a pretty good example of a yokai who understands what exactly will happen if she does reject the society that she lives in. So she basically is as close to rejecting it as she can without affecting her own identity and making herself unstable. Yeah. Yeah. She's running a newspaper, but as badly as possible. <laughs> yeah. And promoting Tengu interests, but as badly as possible. <laughs> yeah. And I think sort of, you know, we we brought up Yukari earlier as sort of a human who became a yokai. And, you know, she's a very yokai-like yokai. And I think that there's another sage who is sort of the converse of that, who is a yokai who has thrown away their yokai, like, self and mindset. And who is basically turning themselves into a human. Yeah. Because she's, well, such a powerful and legendary yokai, it won't probably be as quick as something like the Yamawara's transformation, but I think that eventually Kasan might just be a human hermit. I don't know if she will become necessarily like a or completely ordinary human hermit, but I do think that given a long enough time, she might end up evolving into some kind of like saint who, like two humans who, like maybe like the only nature of her is sort of forgotten and She's just kind of assumed to be human. There might be that deeper metaphysical change going on with her with like the end of Well and Her Hermit kind of implying that she wasn't just, you know, hiding her horns under those buns. The only health had been like literally and magically separated from her. Yeah, just sheared away by a... That was the trigger for her changing slowly towards humanity. And I think that you can really see in the earlier chapters of Wild and Horned Hermit that, that she starts to have a more human perspective. Like, she's just like, is the nature of a place where humans are attacked by yokai and yokai are, are exterminated by humans really the way that things should be? She's starting to think of Gensokyo from a more human-like perspective, I think. Yeah. yeah. And that all leads up to chapter 35, where she flat out... I think you can't really read that as anything but a rejection of her inhumanity, honestly. Because Okina in Hidden Star uses the same R-side terminology that Yukari does in that chapter. So it's not just rejecting being the type of person Yukari is, it's basically rejecting the fact that she's not human. She's on the side of humanity. Yeah. Mm. And obviously Yukari's interpretation at that moment is just like very like, what the heck are you doing? Like, why are you being such a weirdo? I think that it's kind of the same way that... Remu and Marisa think of Kosuzu. Why would you reject the type of being that you are? Yeah, like, they're literally, like, as you said earlier, that girl ain't right. 
I think we should maybe issue a disclaimer that like we're not saying that being neurodivergent in any way is like you know a bad or wrong thing but it is going to get you we're also not saying that it's equivalent to being a yoka yeah like it's a thing that is going to get you that kind of reaction from neurotypical people a lot Mm -hmm. and that's kind of what it boils down to is just like that person ain't right there's something weird about Mm -hmm. that person it's just in a more concrete sense with humans who think like yokai than humans who just think slightly strangely but still in a recognizably human way or yokai who think like humans yokai happen to fall under the very wide umbrella of like atypical like mental processes yeah yeah they're not like intentionally or primarily a metaphor for neurodivergent people or anything like that they're not a metaphor for neurodiversity at all but they are neurodiverse it's like yeah This is a facet of how yokai just generally are. And how the term is broadly determined. Yeah, and I'm sure there's, you know, much like the legend of, like, the changeling, there's probably some sort of Japanese folktale about a child who turns out to be, like, off in some way and then becomes a yokai or whatever. Like, 14th century Japanese explanation for, like, you know, having a child who is neurodivergent. I mean, isn't Kasen that... There's also the entire Hill of the Nameless in actual Toho, where human children who end up raised by yokai end up becoming yokai. Yeah. Oni in particular are often taken as various levels of metaphor for human outlaws and stuff like that. Or at least one of the various backstories for, like, Ibaraki Doji has her or him, depending on the... Them. Obviously, yeah. Has them as, like, a child born with physical deformities who is like uh, hated for that and ends up becoming a yoni or being a yoni all along or however the story is taken but i think that it's actually a lot more common in japanese tales for a child with physical unusual traits to end up actually being a yokai than a yokai being a person who had mentally unusual traits but that's maybe because they're just more noticeable yeah but there are yeah. there are like mental causes in the sense of grudges or envy or hatred mm-hmm. like yeah. emotions in a more temporary sense it's interesting that some that you get stuff like omnio and yokai coming from the same causes but they think in completely different ways even legendarily yeah and I think the other thing with like the changeling equivalent and things is you do see that like in stories of Oni and such where like Shuten Doji is a rambunctious, uncontrollable child until they run yeah. off one day and become an Oni. Yeah. So I think it's not a uncommon motif. Yeah, it's especially yeah. for Oni, I think. Yeah. yeah, it's something about sticking out in that particular anti-society sort of way. Yeah. yeah. Modern Japanese society is pretty heavy with the conformity, so people who tend to stand out tend to be demonized, in this case, literally. Um, Especially children. Yeah, yeah. This reminds me, does, does anyone know if earth spiders have the any of the disease motive in actual like mythology? Because what I know of them is mostly that they're pretty universally accepted to be a euphemism for like uncivilized mountain tribes who were exterminated by the imperial army. Huh. I think that interpretation was introduced by Kosuzu's namesake. 
Oh. I think it's like the first sentence in the Japanese Wikipedia article and stuff like that. Yeah, they are based on that, but... I have no idea. Is it that Tsuchigumo are all like that in Toho, or is, is it just Yamame? Yeah, we don't know that either. Because there's also just a thing where yokai are just generally good at giving people mysterious illnesses. Shout out to Tamamo no Mai. Dark shout out to Tamamo. Kind of started wondering if on Zunsend it was more of a chicken or egg situation that... Like the the reason, formatically speaking, that the Chuchigumo are in the underground could be that they are metaphor for, and the Oni actually, the Chuchigumo and the Oni are both seen as metaphors for like barbarians, and they're both stuck in the underground in Toho's case. Didn't make that connection actually. I think that's probably intentional. I think yeah. Nonsense part. So we talked about Kasen and we talked about Kueishi. There was a third character that I had in mind, but then it like just completely evaporated. Because <laughs> I know there's definitely like a third notable yokai who is sort of just like... Kokoro? Not quite. Kokoro is not the one I was thinking of, but Kokoro is definitely a good example of a, another yokai who sort of lost their purpose in a way or like sense of who they are. Lost emotion. Kokoro is a good example of a young yokai learning to fulfill the role of basically being a yokai. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. I'm sure somebody will kindly remind me by leaving a message in the inbox about it or whatever. But I think another like huge factor in like the way that yokai thought processes are sort of different from humans, aside from just like, you know, their nature as people eating or people frightening monsters is just that like their lifespans are so much longer than human lifespans. I think that might also lead to them thinking about the way they think about humans in general because their lifespans are just so long. Like the the lifespan psychology of a yokai is so much different than a human's because the yokai is not going to follow the same life stages that a human being does where they're like a child. In the first place, they're born as basically functional. They're like horses or something where they're walking around immediately after being born. <laughs> Oh, also, I was thinking about the young yokai in Forbidden Scrollery is they aren't necessarily getting exterminated because they violate the rules of Gensokyo. They're being exterminated because that's just kind of... They're not necessarily being bad yokai in any concrete way. They're just in the wrong place at the wrong time, basically. Yeah, and there's definitely, you know, this expectation that the yokai exterminators are going to exterminate the yokai. So that's kind of what they do. Yeah, like, if you, even if a rat is properly being a rat, and the giant rat that makes all the rules is just like, yeah, you're being a proper rat, good for you. If the rat ends up in your house, there's still a good chance that the rat's going to end up dead because of it, even if the rat's being a proper rat and not actually causing you any physical danger at all. Yeah. Yeah. I think maybe a house spider would be a better uh, metaphor there, honestly, just because spiders are definitely... Like, I wanted to use the giant rat that makes out the rules. <laughs> yeah. That's what you get for mixing metaphors. You get squashed like a bug. Mm -hmm. so, but yeah, so the lifespan thing is, I think, a pretty huge factor in terms of, like, the, the ways that yokai sort of think and behave and engage with, like, you know, the world around them. And, like, the fact that they live for so long means that everything is sort of on a much shorter time scale for them. 
Yeah, there was something about the yokai lunisolar calendar having the shortest unit of time as opposed to, like, a day being a month. Yeah, because once you've lived for, like, you know, a thousand years, two thousand years, whatever, a year is going to seem like a very small fragment of your life, much like, you know, as, as a human being ages, the years tend to seem like they're going by quicker because they're just becoming smaller and smaller fractions of your life. Yeah. And you can sort of take that and expand it and, like, consider, like, not only the fact that yokai don't really have a developmental stage like human beings do, where they learn about, like, how to behave, basically. and How to yokai. Yeah. A yokai already knows its purpose. Yeah. If age brings anything, it's probably just a better ability to blend in as a human. That actually, yeah, that makes a lot of sense because all the really powerful yokai are, like, experts at blending into human society. And even if they're obviously, like, you know, extremely frightening and scary, like Yuka. Yeah, even if they're pretty inhuman, even then they can just appear relatively human if they feel the need to. Yeah, I guess a lot of the things that human beings consider neurodivergence tend to be expressed or appear sort of during those developmental years where, you know, this person's not, you know, learning or behaving as they necessarily should be, quote-unquote. And so, like, yokai don't really have that. So I think a lot of what we would define as yokai um, being neurodivergence. The few specific examples that we ended up having are more like yokai that had a sudden and kind of exogenic shift like later in life yeah i think it's just because there is no default plan that a yokai is supposed to fall into because there's no like natural pattern of development for yokai to follow they are fulfilling what they are supposed to do at day one yeah by the time they are a yokai they are a fully developed yokai plus or minus animals that need to learn but that's much less the animal doesn't know how to be a yokai and more it hasn't realized the consequences of being a yokai like the snake in forbidden scrollery yeah yeah or tsukumogami that are just funny objects with legs i think there's also just haven't fully become yokai yet like if someone like Kosuzu is in a sort of transitional state between being a human and being a yokai. A plate that just turned 100 years old is in a transitional stage between being a plate and being a yokai. But even a lot of those Tsukumogami are sort of aware of what they are and their place in and role in Gensokyo, because there's that broom that Reimu interviews in Forbidden Scholarly at one point. I think it's also because they don't have to transition from a former life as an XYZ. Hmm. Like, if you're a snake and you go into a bar and you steal, like, food from it, you aren't going to face consequences unless somebody catches the fact that there's a snake stealing from the bar. Yeah. But if you're human shape, nobody's going to miss the fact that you're diamond dashing. (laughs) Yeah. So, like, yeah, I do think that as a result of the fact that yokai don't really have necessarily a developmental stage like human beings do, like, most yokai neurodivergence is more of, like, a rejection of that nature or purpose or whatever. Yeah, it's much more of a conscious decision than a innate difference with yeah. what you see in humans. Yeah, it's not that, like, Kasen, being Kasen is not something that... She wasn't born being 
a yokai that was an unusual yokai, basically. Yeah, she didn't, like, fail to fulfill the expectations of being an oni. She's just throwing those expectations away. Deciding that she doesn't want to be an oni. Yeah, and yeah. same with Fuishi, who did not... Want to be a Satori. Yeah, she did not enjoy hearing people's, like, hateful thoughts about her and stuff like that, about, you know, her mind-reading ability. And she didn't want that anymore, so she just got rid of it, and that resulted in, you know, her being the way that she is. Mm-hmm. I don't know that you could necessarily point to the way that a yokai acts and be like, this is indicative of, you know, them having uh, some kind of human neurodivergence. Certainly they could... Resemble humans who are neurodivergent, but I still think that there's... A difference in mindset even from a yokai that acts one way and a human that acts the exact same way yeah like yeah i I don't think you could necessarily say that like this yokai is autistic or whatever certainly Mm -hmm. like there's definitely yokai that act in a way that could be interpreted as autistic by people alice margatroyd is a pretty good example yeah definitely and so like And obviously there's no reason why you couldn't, you know, have fun with that and, like, lean into and, like, sort of embracing that aspect of that character. There's no reason you couldn't write a story about Alice, you know, being autistic. Yeah, there's no reason that you can't necessarily map the way that yokai act onto human thought patterns, if you want. Yeah. I think that if a yokai were to be neurodivert, like neurodiversity for a yokai is something that is entirely different from the way that it presents in human beings. So like... The term is kind of strange to use. I don't think that a yokai being autistic is necessarily... A helpful distinction. Yeah. And there's also sort of the thorny implications of applying human neurodivergences to explicitly non-human beings as well. Yeah. Like, there's a long, very unfortunate history of that in real life, like the changeling myth people talked about earlier. Mm -hmm. So even if you're doing that, like, that's at least to me kind of a thorny thematic minefield that you're going to have to stumble through. Yeah. Like, you know, there's no reason you can't have fun with it, but you do have to be a little mindful. I do also want to talk about the fact that, like, there's a difference between neurodivergence and yokai having mental illnesses because yokai are pretty explicitly capable of experiencing mental illnesses in whatever state they show up yeah in fact they're supposedly you know even weaker to mental attacks than human beings are yeah catch me rolling up to the yokai festival with triple depression Yeah, that's definitely an important distinction, and we did gloss over it last time we talked about this subject. Is there anything else you want to cover on this topic? Because we're sort of getting near the end of an episode. Yeah, I guess I just wanted to mention yokai can have mental illnesses, and I have no idea how those might express themselves, because the way that yokai think is very different from the way that humans think. That's been the entire thing of the episode. (laughs) Yeah. I suppose you could consider Kokoro an example of a yokai mental illness, maybe. That actually does sound like it makes sense. It doesn't map to a human one, necessarily. Yeah, but yeah. nothing that yokai really experience maps to human experience. Yeah. Exactly. I think it's kind of unclear what's like supposed to be Kokoro's, so to speak, natural state. Is it actually the norm for her species, which I suppose she is the seen as the original one of? If not the only one of, so... She's not really a species, she's kind of a unique... Yeah, yeah that's the thing that's kind of hard to define, but point is, is it her natural state, kind of, to not 
understand emotions and not express them normally. Well, I think that that's not what we were particularly talking yeah, about. I think we were talking true. about more the hope thing and yeah, hopeless yeah. masquerade versus her later appearances. Yeah, okay, that makes yeah. sense. Yeah, yeah, like losing the mask or not having the mask and how that affects her. Yeah, masks equal serotonin. Yeah, I think that's more akin to if you want to make a really shallow and human comparison yeah like i think that kokoro situation is definitely much more comparable to mental illness than like any kind of neurodivergence yeah you can map her later appearances to neurodivergence if you want but it's just sort of still the way that yokai are yeah yeah is that all we have to talk about any final thoughts any final words (laughs) any last words any last words? Let me see those beautiful legs. <laughs> or let me have those beautiful legs. Whatever Yukari's last... Lend me those beautiful legs. Yes, yes. Lend me those beautiful legs. Cut this part out. <laughs> <laughs> Don't. No. Leave this in. Oh, God. You've been overruled. Anyway, we will all see you next week on Outside World Cultism. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, bye. Listening. Thank you all for watching and listening and existing, too. (laughs) If you do any or all of those things. Yeah, we're just trying to be inclusive. (laughs) Bye. 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 Bye.